I'm Cinder Niemela. Welcome to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. I believe the most powerful gifts you can give yourself is time to reflect on your talents and experience, and then have the wisdom to act with confidence and grace. This podcast is for entrepreneurs, leaders, and individuals who want to thrive in work and life. Your journey to being connected and inspired by the world around you starts right now. Today, my guest is Andrew Nemmer. Andrew is a master tap dancer, TED fellow, and a millennial. The New York Times described Andrew as a masterly tapper. Today, he is considered one of the most diverse tap dance artists in the world. He is an international performer, choreographer, educator, and speaker. Andrew mentored with Savion Glover and Gregory Hines. He has played with Grammy award-winning musicians across multiple genres. He's danced at the opening ceremony of the Cannes Film Festival, the Jerry Lewis Telethon, and the Winter Olympics Art Festival, just to name a few of his awards. I've added show notes and links to his bio and several videos of Andrew Tapping. Tap emerged about 150 years ago. It's an American melding of African and European percussive dance traditions. I didn't know this history when I was a kid watching musicals from the 40s with Sammy Davis Jr., Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly, Eleanor Powell, James Cagney, and Ginger Rogers. In these movies, the characters experience personal challenges, but their love of dance and song helped them put life into perspective. Finding solace in music and dance during troubling times is a common theme for the artists on The Voice, So You Think You Can Dance, and World of Dance. Artists of all kinds inspire me to think about life from different perspectives and in a more holistic way. Meetings have agendas, we have roles and responsibilities, and processes and protocols. It's all very left brain. Like dance and music, these rules of engagement serve a purpose. Yet many of us also have a yearning to discover our creative voice and develop it during our workday, not just on the weekends or after work. Andrew says that dance is not about technique. It's about life and how dancing is a part of it. Andrew will share with us his personal journey of self-expression and self-discovery from taking his first dance class at three years old and how that inspired his lifelong love and commitment to tap. His experience mentoring with Gregory Hines and Savion Glover. Finally, Andrew will share with us how trust, play, and fun impact his relationship and his performances with others. He will also give us advice on values, decision-making, and leading others. Andrew, welcome to the call. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, yes, it's it's my pleasure. I have had the most fun over the last couple of weeks watching your YouTube videos and TEDx videos of tap dancing. It's amazing how much is out there. Yeah, I've had a I've had a blast of a journey so far, so I'm glad I'm glad you enjoyed it. Oh, I have. I've enjoyed it so much. And you know, I'd really like to start at the very beginning, uh, your story of when you were three years old and took a tap 
class. You said you were a single child? Yeah. How, how is it that your parents put you in a tap class? I'm an only child, and uh, my folks thought, as an only child, I should have some sort of activity with other kids. Uh, my mom had been a preschool uh, kindergarten teacher, mm-hmm. um, but was staying at home with me. So, you know, I was, I was young. I was too young for kindergarten. Um, they started looking around the neighborhood for possible activities, and there was a dance school very close to the house. So we went. I watched my first class, and I liked what I saw, so my folks signed me up. And that first time when you were three years old, did you have a feeling that you had a talent for it? <laughs> Not at all. Um, I, think, <laughs> I think I just wanted to, to be good at whatever it is that I was doing. The first inclination that I wanted more than you know, just to have some fun was uh, at the recital when I was, I guess, going on four years old. Um, this is the, the first performance of my first year of dancing. I was the kid that walked out on stage with everybody else and kind of made sure everybody was in their, their right spot before we started the dance. <laughs> A natural director. And so you continued with tap dancing then? Yeah, in dance school, I took uh, tap jazz, ballet, and gymnastics. Uh-huh. Um, gymnastics was kind of the first dance that I decided I didn't want to pursue. So that was the first to go. And then when I was nine, I saw the movie Tap, which starred Sammy Davis Jr., Gregory Hines, and a very young Savion Glover. And that was the first time that I saw improvisational kind of self-expressive tap dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, once I saw that movie, that's the moment that I count kind of falling in love with tap dancing. Yes, I love that story. You, you tell it on several of the TED videos. You had a goal to meet as many of the tappers as you could on that show. And so you wound up meeting Savion Glover and Gregory Hines. Yes, indeed. Um, within a year of, of seeing the film, um, a series of events that you know, would not have been able to have been planned any better, uh, got me into a workshop uh, in New York City with Gregory Hines and one right after with Savion Glover. And, you know, the, the life goal of meeting those guys was, was achieved very early. <laughs> it was. You just put that intention out to the universe and they gave it to you right away. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I believe in in divine intervention. So <laughs> there there was a lot of intervention happening, I think. So I was born in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Uh, my folks are uh, refugees from Lebanon. They left during the the civil war of the seventies and eighties, mm-hmm. and and landed in Edmonton. Uh, I was born there, and then we moved a lot when I was younger and landed for a a decent chunk of time in Alexandria, Virginia. I count kind of being raised in Alexandria. And then we moved up to to the New York City area just as I was becoming a teenager. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that you were from Lebanon. I grew up in Saudi Arabia, and we used to go to Beirut a lot. And I do remember the Civil War of the 70s and 80s was... A very difficult time. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, growing up as a, as a kid, I remember very clearly kind of watching the news and anytime Beirut or anything from Lebanon came on the news, you know, my folks would be kind of tied and start telling stories of like recognizing the area that they were talking about or where their lives intersected with, with what was being reported. Mm -hmm. It makes for an interesting, an interesting childhood when you're generation zero in a place. Our last name only has one vowel that kind of brings, brings it up fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. And how do you pronounce your last name? Uh, we pronounce it Nimmer, but there was there was a time in my life when I actually didn't know how to pronounce it because <laughs> it's a it's a phonetic spelling of an Arabic word. So I would you know people would ask me at school and I would come home and I was like, so how do how I would ask my parents how do we actually pronounce our last name? And you know they've they've taken it for granted their whole life because they're from the place and so nobody would really ask. And so you go through like six months of trying to decide exactly how it's going to work. <laughs> oh, that's funny. You continued your tap dancing right through high school and mm -hmm. then went to college and majored in animation. Is that right? Yeah, computer animation. So the deal with my parents was that they thought... Uh, you know, I was well steeped in, in this tap dancing thing. Uh, you know, I, I was well, well connected in, in the scene. Um, but they thought it really important that I, that I go to college and that I get a degree. Uh, but they also thought that the degree should be in something that I enjoyed. So it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be a burden. It would be just another journey. And the other thing that I enjoyed kind of coming through high school was computer animation. I went to a, a very uh, unique science and tech high school in Bergen County, New Jersey. And they had, you know, silicon graphics machines with 3D animation software, which is, you know, relatively unheard of in a, at a high school setting in the late 90s. Mm -hmm. So did the application and ended up going to School of Visual Arts for computer animation uh, for my BFA. Have you used it since then? Nope. Nope. <laughs> no, because you have a very busy resume. I want to go back for a minute and sure. I know you were quite involved with Gregory Hines and Savion Glover. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you did with them and what it was like to work with them? Sure. I'll start with Savion because he was, he's probably the one that uh, I spent the most actual time with. So the, the tap dance world functions more in the vein of kind of informal mentoring than, uh, than formal education, especially when you get taken under the wing of what we would describe as a master. So I started working with Savion in that vein, when I was, gosh, 10, 10 and a half years old, he would run uh, a series of residencies where he would come to Washington, D.C., audition a group of kids, and then in a week, we would all learn a piece and then perform the piece at the end of the week. I was 10, he was 17, and he was the recognized kind of 
torchbearer of the craft for my generation. Like we would, we would be looking to him. And if we look to anybody older, they would say, you know, look to him. And so being, being in the room, uh, seeing his creative process, learning techniques from him, and then also being able to hang out after uh, and kind of being taken into the, the social circle of things was really uh, my introduction to the, entire, the entirety of, of the craft. Uh, that, that situation went on for three years annually, and out of that grew a, a small company, an all-guys group called Real Tap Skills that Savion ran, and it was a, a few of us guys from the, the D.C. metro area. And we traveled and, and did gigs as they came up. At, at one point, Savion basically went off and did uh, Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk, mm. which was an amazing, amazing Broadway show of 1995, 96, 97. And at that point, you know, my, my time with Savion was extremely limited. I wasn't a part of the show. He was super busy. A bunch of my friends were super busy. So I found myself kind of on the outs of the, the social, the social and, the, and the dance kind of gathering, as it were. Mm. And I ended up around the same time this, this old cat, Buster Brown, was running a, a jam session in a small club called Swing 46. And so every Sunday, uh, tap dancers would gather and there'd be a, a live jazz trio and we would, we would dance one by one. You know, Buster would invite us up to the stage. We'd ask for a song, the band would play it, and we would dance. And that, that period of time, I would suspect, is the time that I really kind of was forced to grow into my own voice. Mm. being around a dancer like Savion, who's so clear with his own process and with the, the voice that he has. I think as a, as a growing dancer, it's on the one hand amazing because you have a very clear process, but on the other, there's, uh, there isn't a lot of space for questioning that process. Mm-hmm. Being separated and distant for a time was actually although I didn't really like it, <laughs> you know, I missed, I missed my friends. Um, it, it was actually a really good time for me. And you were about 13 years old at this point. Yeah, this is, this is during the time I'm a teenager. Yeah, 13 through about 17, 18. So for people who aren't familiar with dance, because uh, I have a lot of business people that listen, which is why I wanted you on. Um, sure. Because business people, they put aside their creative voice or that urge to express themselves creatively. And many business people say, oh, I'm, I'm not creative. Or I'm creative in how I solve problems. And one of the things that really intrigued me about your story is that TAP for you is a... Um, it's a way of self-expression and self-discovery. Um, Tell us a little bit about how your voice evolved. Sure. I believe that everybody's been given a voice. The, the question is, 
if we if we have enough time to see it, discover it, recognize it. Tap dancing was the way that I've journeyed to the discovery of the voice that I've been given. You know, a, a purging of emotions. As a teenager, I was excessively emotional. <laughs> so frustration came out as energy. Anger came out as, as energy. Heartbreak came out as energy. And all that energy I put to dancing. And I had just enough of a skill set to kind of focus the energy and the form, you know, tap dancing being improvisational allowed just enough leeway for me to make choices on my own. So through, through the purging of, of just this kind of emotive energy, I started to find out things within the context of dancing that I liked that may be different than everybody else that I saw. Like what? There's like particular rhythms or particular songs. As a teenager, I would, I had a little piece of, of plywood. It was about four by four. Uh, I had it in my room. And after a long day at school, I would come home. And before I did any work, I would dance. And the way I would dance is I would turn all the lights off in my room. I'd put on you know, a particular song louder than any other noise that was in my room. And I would go for about half hour, maybe an hour, until all the energy that I had for the course of the day was gone, like the excess stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I got to find that I really, I really liked rhythms that had space in them. Um, I didn't like tap dancers or you might find this in drummers as well. We like to fill tons of notes. So it's like, it's like, it's a lot. For me, the idea of having, having a rhythm or stumbling upon something that was like, Sega. That's a very different place. And finding those rhythms allowed me to to kind of embody that place, which wasn't as evocative of the, the nerves that I was experiencing as a anxious teenager. So through the dancing, I was able to kind of give myself a, a reset. Yeah, that's. Be- I wondered how you were going to describe that because you do it so well on video. Of course, it's a it's a visual art, and mm-hmm. uh, we are playing in an audio art. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I love that you that you did those rhythms for us so that we can understand that. And I'm going to put a lot of links to uh, the videos that I found of you with improv and some of the other videos that I found so that people can get a sense of what, what you're talking about. One of the things that really impressed me was how you could tap in some of the TED videos and, some of the, and most of the others and also talk at the same time. 
So it was somebody who was totally <laughs> not coordinated at all. I found that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so there, there is this idea that um, like human beings can't actually multitask. We mm -hmm. just switch really quickly between the things that we, that we're trying to pay attention to or trying to, to execute at any one time. So what's actually going on when I'm dancing and talking is that one of the two is, is taken for granted, right? Either the words that are coming out of my mouth have been very clearly memorized. And I'm thinking more about how the dancing is supporting the words or the dancing is kind of on autopilot. And I'm thinking more about what words are supposed to be coming out of my mouth over the course of one piece that can be switching, but it's not actually doing two things at one time. Mm. Well, you could have fooled me. <laughs> well, there, there's the secret. I, I hope I didn't spoil the, <laughs> spoil the experience, but that's, that's the inside track. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is amazing. So you, you studied with uh, Savion Glover, and now he's gone off, and he's doing his own thing, and you're left with yeah. discovering your voice. What about Gregory Hines? What was it like to work with him? Gregory was probably the most generous dancer I've ever met. Someone who was very, very well known. Lots of people uh, kind of wanted his time and attention. And yet, as a very young dancer, you know, our relationship started basically with me chasing him around everywhere that he was, <laughs> uh, which, <laughs> which would be, you know, odd in other circumstances. But that's, that's what it was, to such a degree that when Apple was unveiling the iMac, Gregory was, was billed as going to be at the the unveiling, the keynote address for the iMac unveiling at Jacob Javits Center in New York City. Mm. And so my mom and I bought tickets to the keynote address of the developers conference for Apple to see Gregory on the stage in the hopes that, you know, we'd be able to go backstage and say hi. Uh, by this time, he, he knew who I was, but he knew me as a kid who was chasing him around. And we weren't able to make it backstage, Gregory came on, did maybe 15 minutes, and then left. And then right away, Sinbad, the, the comic, came on and did another 45. And my mom and I are stuck in the second row of this huge auditorium, and we, we couldn't leave. But my dad was waiting outside in a car and spotted Gregory leaving the center. And my dad flagged him down. Now, my parents are not normally outgoing people. But at this moment, my dad found his own voice <laughs> and flagged <laughs> Gregory down. And Gregory came over and he knew my parents because they were the ones allowing me to chase him around. And my dad said, would you please be in touch with my son? I'm tired of driving. <laughs> That is so funny. And Gregory cracked up and, you know, 
they continued chatting for a little bit and then Greg left. And the next time that we were in the same place, Gregory handed me his email address and said, be in touch. And so my relationship with Gregory was more about really navigating what it was to be a tap dancer than it was, here's this job or here's this specific technique that I use while dancing. The emails that we shared going back and forth were really more about life and how dancing is a part of it. Dancing is a part of life. That is so interesting. So he was very philosophical. Yeah. He was an amazing dancer. I'm also going to put in some links to some of Gregory Hines' dances that I found out on YouTube and on the internet. This is the other thing that always um, surprised me because I used to like to watch him as well. He was so tall, or he seems really tall. Was he very tall? Not super. But he, he wasn't short. And there are many other dancers who were shorter. I think one thing that's unique about Greg was that he, was, he came from a time where uh, dancers were kind of all well-rounded. So he could sing extremely well. Uh, dance, he was a very good actor. His comic timing was impeccable. And that kind of ethic of being in the business of being entertaining seems harder to find in generations after Greg. And then, you know, his, his kind of contribution to the craft, which is something that I took to as a young dancer was that he began to shed a lot of the like formalities of the entertainment business. So his aesthetic as a dancer was very naturalistic. He would break the fourth wall all the time. Uh, the fourth wall is uh, in a performance. You have the stage and you have the audience. And you, you know that the stage is surrounded by three walls, but mm-hmm. there's, the, there's the place where the curtain comes down. And uh, performers call that the fourth wall. And we can play with our relationship to the audience as divided by the fourth wall. It can either really be there and, you know, then the audience is kind of looking into this fishbowl and seeing a lot of fish swim, or you can break it. And at that point, the audience becomes more a part of whatever is going on than just kind of viewers. Mm-hmm. And Greg was really, really key for me in seeing that fourth wall broken time and time and time again. So the audience is still in their seats. They're still mm-hmm. separated from you by a big difference, especially if it's a big auditorium. And yet your relationship with them changes by breaking that fourth wall. Yes, dramatically. Hmm. And how do you do that? By talking. Hmm. One of the, so tap dancing is kind of this, oddball of an art form to a certain degree. Uh, It's visual, but it's also audible. Uh, It has a 150-year history, but that history isn't common knowledge. Many of the tap dance artists know that through the craft alone, we we can evoke emotion, we can tell stories in sort of an abstract uh, form, but 
there's a sense for me that because the craft is abstract by nature, the audience will always be distant. And so one of the reasons I started talking is to bring people into the experience that I was having as a dancer and say, if we're talking about this, I'm going to be dancing like this. Like the, the dancing that I do is connected to very specific ideas, very specific feelings, um, very specific stories, and at times very specific people. And wouldn't it be cool, you know, in terms of an idea of like bringing everyone together who's actually in the same room, kind of opening up that window into my own experience. And then, then it's really a shared experience. Yes. Oh, I get what you're saying. Yeah. The origins of tap dancing, it was, you said it was the melding of African and European percussive dance tradition. Now, percussive, that refers to a type of instrument? That refers to a, a particular kind of dance that includes hitting something with the body. Oh. So percussive dances would include flamenco or katak from India or gumboot dancing from, I think that's West African. Around the world, there are a number of dances that create sound and and that the creation of sound is part of them so in the form they are they are percussive it's like the human body is hitting the floor with with their feet or maybe there's clapping involved tap dance different than like the social dances of a time so different than different than the waltz or swing dancing percussive dances have uh, this other element to them Mm -hmm. So this idea of the dance changes form based on your experience at the time, the ideas that you want to communicate, the feelings that you have or you want to communicate, the story that you want to tell, and the people, is really, I think, reflected in some of the videos that I saw, particularly this one I really liked was Tap That Dulcimer. Hmm because of the instrument is so beautiful that seems to represent to me i don't know in my <laughs> my novice mind perhaps my really curious mind about how to apply this concept of dance to ideas feelings stories and people talk a little bit about how that came about because I, I do love that story sure uh, Maxi T is a dear friend of mine. He's a phenomenal hammered dulcimer player. His instrument of choice has over a hundred strings on it. It has a history of being kind of tied to American folk music traditions. But uh, if you trace the history of the instrument way back, there are kind of related instruments in India, in Eastern Europe, um, in Persia. We met through a mutual friend and basically really enjoyed playing with one another. And that, that might sound kind of simplistic, but there's a lot that goes into 
enjoying playing one another. Like we, we trust each other. We have similar sensibilities, musically speaking. We enjoy challenging one another. And so the play becomes fun. And the story around Tap That Dulcimer, the, the talk, was basically this idea that here's this kid from Chicago who found the hammered dulcimer and there isn't really a path for him to, to play that instrument in a way that is, uh, it's like, it's not a cultural norm. And then here's this other kid who's, you know, his parents are from Lebanon and is raised in the suburbs and he found tap dancing and it's also not a cultural norm. But when they found each other, there was something about both their journeys and both their sensibilities and both and the fact that both their instruments aren't necessarily cultural norms that allowed them enough leeway and enough framework, kind of both those things happening at the same time, to come together and play. And they brought with them all the stuff that they were learning and all, like everything about their journey. And even though their journeys weren't the same in the specifics, they were able to lock in and produce kind of a, a beautiful moment. I love the way you wrapped it up in this video by saying that to share this moment of acceptance and that allowed, allowed the two of you to be open where you could have easily stayed in your own swim lanes, if you will, in your own personal journeys. But you wrapped your two histories and your two cultures together so that we could share it, so that we could all share yeah. it. And you, you end that with, wouldn't it be beautiful if we could all just have this kind of trust and play with each other? I love that word play. It's a word that Wow, we just don't hear in in business, and yet it. What I'm hearing you say, at first, it took the trust. Yeah, yeah. There's there was a uh, there's a dancer named Steve Condos, who you know, in my journey, tap dancing, like all the information lives in people. So <laughs> you try and find people, whether whether it be through like video interviews, if they're not alive anymore, or if they're alive, you try and get to the person. Steve Condos was not alive, but I, I found a video interview where he's talking about improvisation as a game. And I thought that was really interesting because in games, there are rules and there are other players. And it really boils down to a kind of like your relationship to the rules and the other players that allows for the game to be fun or only competitive or some people might think a game is a waste of time but the idea of play for me has really undergirded a lot of my process mm. and so so every time I meet a new musician um, or a new dancer or enter into a new project my question is often okay so what game are we playing and how do you like to play even if I don't say that question out loud, that's the framework that I'm using. I really love that. I, I just 
can imagine, for example, executives in a big company saying, okay, let's play. What game are you playing? Yeah. What are the rules? Who are the other players? Yeah. Let's have some fun. <laughs> right. And then you, then you get to talk about values. Okay, so we're going to play this game. And what's the purpose? Mm -hmm. Is the purpose to win or is the purpose to have a good game? Are the relationship with the players kind of tension-filled? Well, if there's tension there, why is there tension? Is it because of the rules of the game or is it become because of the relationship between the players? And so we can, we can begin to kind of pick apart things and enter into conversations that might otherwise not obviously happen or maybe be taken for granted in a framework that's theoretically lighthearted and something that we know from, from the time that we're kids. Is it important that the rules be there? Yeah, I, th I think so. Okay. I think oftentimes the, the rules are not explicit mm -hmm. and that can be confusing. All right. And then different people end up in the same game, but operating with different rules. And, and then you have arguments. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right. It's like people are fighting. Well, why are they fighting? Well, because they're playing the same game, but under different rules and assuming that their rule set is the, the correct one. Yes. Right. So, you know, that's, yeah, that, <laughs> that happens quite a bit. Right? Oh. Well, in your example then, or uh, with the dulcimer, what it, cause it seems to me that the rules for tap dancing might be different from the rules of playing a dulcimer or am I not understanding it? No, that's, that's a very good insight, right? So the rules in tap dance land, uh, if we take a, a tap dancer specifically, would seem to be dramatically different than ha the hammer dulcimer. Mm -hmm. But there's a rule set that undergirds both, and that would be the rules that govern music and the rules that govern kind of physical activity, because physics is everywhere, and the rules that govern communication. So Music is organized in a very particular way. And depending on how people uh, relate to that organization, you're either going to have, you know, playing that seems to gel between a series of musicians or playing that seems to be at odds. And so one of the things that happens when you work in a craft that is not common <laughs> is that conversations have to be, they have to become more explicit because you're always teaching someone else about how to relate to what it is that you do. And so the thing with Max and I that was super helpful is that his instrument is percussive. He hits strings with mallets. My instrument is also percussive. I hit the floor with my feet. So we have like a common physical language that gives us, you know, a similar rhythmic vocabulary. So a lot of our games, a lot of the, the play that we have is around ideas of rhythm. Now he also has, you know, this instrument that resonates 
beautifully. There's a hundred strings. If you hit one, others vibrate as well. My instrument doesn't do that. So the question becomes, what can I do in the game that we play together that's complementary of the sounds that come off of Max's instrument? And that also becomes part of the game. Do I do do I cre- do I create sounds and rhythms that clash with what he's doing that match with what he's doing or that become complementary to what he's doing? What was the answer? Oh, uh, we we tend to land in the in the complementary space. Mm-hmm. That's again like a a personal sensibility that we both share that we want. We want the thing that we do together to be more than anything that we could individually do on our own. Hmm. Yeah, and how the so two of we, you tell your story, perhaps that's the part of the complementary aspect of the music, because you're both telling your individual stories in the way that you look at each other. Indeed. You know, it's, it's kind of fun when you find someone on your journey that you can you can share a lot with and that things don't have to be the same for the relationship to grow mm-hmm. right so max's personal journey and my personal journey are pretty different they're different enough for if we were different people for it to be divisive mm-hmm. but it's not and that that tends to be i think just because of where we've landed in terms of our individual value sets. And so because of that, we're able to kind of open up this, this play space. And that becomes, it becomes really fun Hmm. because the play space is an expression of this idea that regardless of where Max comes from, we can, we can enjoy one another and and play with one another and find things that we wouldn't have found on our own we both grow yeah is that how you master your craft by partnering with other people who have a different way of expressing themselves either musically or through dance and and playing with them for me i think that's that's definitely been a huge part of the journey there's been an idea for me that if, and I know this, this is an old idea, it's not, uh, it's not something I came up with, but part of mastery is being able to explain something simply. And part of understanding something simply is to really begin to understand what's actually important in the thing. And so as a, as a tap dancer, if I'm able to you know, interact with Max as a hammer dulcimer player who has musical backgrounds in Senegalese music and classical Indian music and, you know, American folk music. And then on the next week, play traditional jazz from the 1920s or bebop, like jazz from the 1950s and 60s. And then the week after play with uh, a classical cellist, then the way that I interact with my own craft changes. 
and the things that I see as fundamentally important to my craft also change. It's kind of the, the discovery of what in a tradition is actually of value, mm. right? Because there are people who would, who would say that tap dancing is, is a percussive dance that's attached to jazz. That was the music of the time when the dance came up. And so you really can't tap dance unless you're tap dancing to jazz because that's the tradition. And that becomes, that becomes a challenging point of view when jazz music has changed over the past hundred years and tap dance has the ability to integrate with a number of other musics. What actually is important in the craftwork of tap dancing? Is it the fact that you do it to jazz? Is it the fact that you can do it to jazz? Or is it the fact that there's a particular sensibility that happens when you do it to jazz that provides kind of a root jump off point? And that root jump off point is the, is the thing that's actually important because that informs your improvisation. It informs your choice making. It informs kind of your musical sensibilities and it informs how you approach the dynamic of a bandstand, you know, the other people that you're working with. And so I've, I've landed on where the roots, what are the most important things? And let's really harp on those because the traditions vary. Are these some of the questions that you consider in your TAP Legacy Foundation? Yeah, I, I think the, so the TAP Legacy Foundation started because tap dancing is an oral tradition. And an oral tradition functions very well in a consistent culture, a culture that isn't continually changing. But as we know, we, we live in a culture that continually changes. And especially through the digital revolution, the change is happening quicker and quicker and quicker. So one of, one of the questions that we try and answer with the TAP Legacy Foundation is, again, what are the most important things that people need to have access to in order for them to really engage with, with the oral tradition of tap dancing? Because the people who, who carry the names, the places, the stories, the techniques around the dance can't travel around the world as quick as a digital video. And so we live, we live in a time where, where content travels faster than context. And so there, there needs to be kind of a, a balance if we want the context of a craft, because that's actually, I would say more important than the content, like the context informs the content then we then we need some some method or some ability for the community to send the context out to like frame it uh in a way that's as fast as kind of the content distribution methods that we have hmm. and how do you do that so the the pro, the main project that we're working on for the top legacy foundation is essentially a digital platform 
that is run by a community for the sake of a particular craft. We're working on it for tap dancing and by extension, American street dances. And the idea is that this is still in in development, but the idea is that we'd be able to surface all the content that exists that's related to these dances. And by putting them all in one place and cross-referencing them, we can begin to have a place where new dancers can explore the context, the relationships, uh, the stories, the, the little kind of data points around the craft that they're interested in pursuing. Mm-hmm. And this, this kind of, this place would be the digital reflection of what it would have been like to sit at the feet of an old master and have them tell you stories. Mm. It's in the works and it's, it's something that, you know, as you, as you navigate kind of archival projects, questions about copyright come up and Mm. the idea of how users interact on a platform and what kind of culture you want the platform to have all become really big questions. And those are, those are things that we're, we're currently exploring. Sounds like a great project. And I know you started that with uh, Gregory Hines. Yeah. He was one of the signatories on the organization. So that's like, we wouldn't be here or be able to do what we're doing without him having signed on. So knowing what you know now, and I know you're coming up to a big birthday, you're a year younger than my son. (laughs) Oh, amazing. In some ways, you're similar. You've, you've identified a creative space that's the vehicle for your voice, and you've got a lot of passion yeah. for it, and really, uh, you are a master tap dancer. If you were going to give advice to somebody who, I don't want to say particularly in your field in tap dancing, but in business, I'm so intrigued yep. with this idea of trust and play and fun, what advice would you give a business leader? Mm. I would say be keen to be clear about the values that you hold and to continually do the work to sharpen those because the sharper those are, the easier all the other choices become. For those people that they lead, I would say to honor them in a way that they are equal players in the game. And in doing so, you'll, you'll find kind of the roles that those players would be fit to play. I mean, even, even in my own journey, I find myself like not having enough time to learn about the other players that I'm with to, to really get to know how they play and what kind of music or what kind of uh, skill set they enjoy playing in. And so I think as, as a leader, the greatest gift that I've been given by the people that I've been mentored by and that I've attempted to, to pass on in whatever project I'm involved in is to be very clear about the game that we're playing, but to give enough space that everybody in the room contributes to the play. 
Yeah. Goosebumps all over. That is such, oh, that is such yeah, that is such great insight. Very, oh, yeah, that is really good. What's, what's one thing you know now that you wish you knew earlier? I, I wish I knew how little time there actually is to do this stuff. Every, every moment really does count. And while, you know, I've, I've been given a ton of second chances and here, let's try it again. And that's a gift. If it, if, if, and when it does happen, those are, those are immense gifts. Well, you certainly have given us a gift of your time and I so appreciate it. My yes. pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Oh, I, so this has been, it even exceeded my expectations so many great messages that apply to business and to life. I mean, after all, I think they're kind of false boundaries that we put up like that fourth wall. There it is. Yep. <laughs> like exactly. that fourth wall. It is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, Andrew, yeah. thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. I so appreciate it. If there's anything that I could do for you, please let me know. I will be following you and your career out on the internet. Awesome. Well, and my hope... pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. You're so welcome. Yeah. Talk to you later. All right. You got it. I'm Cinder Niemela, and you've been listening to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope these conversations illuminate your path to your highest potential. For show notes and links to resources mentioned during today's episode, please go to inspiredwisdom.us. You can also follow Inspired Wisdom on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, design a fulfilling and prosperous life that engages your talents and passions.